Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. I'm very excited about my next guest on the grid, Ryan LaPlante, a WSOP bracelet winner and seven-time World Series of Poker finally tabled with almost two million in recorded live caches. He's also a popular poker coach for Chip Leader Coaching and is unveiling a new site, Learn Pro Poker. Ryan is also one of the most engaging poker Twitter followers for me, at Potential MN, as he provides hand history analysis in an interactive quiz format often illustrating his exploitative approach and his careful attention to every detail. Thanks so much, Ryan, for joining us on The Grid to talk about a hand that most people are pretty happy to see. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fun spot. It's a pretty rare type of situation from one of the more prestigious events of the year that I get to play, the 10K Bellagio. I've played it pretty much every year for the last five years. And it's been a very expensive tournament for me as I only have a min cash and I tend to fire two or three entries. So it's not really the best tournament for me personally in terms of results. But honestly, it's one of my favorite tournaments of the year because it has such a ridiculously good structure and it gets such a large field too that just playing it just feels like, you know, such a cool experience. It's such a unique event. You know, being able to play in Bellagio and being able to play you know, fairly high stakes tournament, you know, with the opportunity to play for a ton of money and playing against some of the best in the world. Just a really cool and really fun experience. And I always really enjoy myself, even if the results don't really follow. And this tournament is usually in December, right? I've actually always yep. wanted to play in it because usually we're in Vegas in the summer and it just must be a completely different experience. The winter in Vegas feels ridiculously different than the summer, uh, especially for you know, a tournament like this, where there's not really that much going on around it, having this big 10K kind of by itself in its own little series makes it feel a lot bigger and more prestigious. Right, right, totally. So this particular hand, um, set it up for us. At what point in the tournament was it? And how are you feeling about the table? So this is pretty early into day two. Maybe it was like second level and I just gotten moved to this table. I didn't really know anyone at it, which is surprising for day two of a 10K. You don't hit the money in the tournament until day three. So it has such an incredibly good structure on top of everything else. So pretty early day two, really soft table. I'm brand new to the table, so I don't really know anything about how anyone's playing or anything like that. I'm 60 big blinds deep, uh, so I have 130,000 at big blind 2,500 with a 2,500 ante, and I have king-queen of diamonds under the gun. You mentioned that um, this was midway through day two, right? Yeah, it's like second level, maybe third. All I I really remember is I was new to the table. Are you first bullet? Because you said usually you fire multiple bullets into this tournament. 
I think this year was the first time I actually A only fired one and then B also cashed. So this table, like the average opponent was probably in their 40s or higher. So it was like all recreational players. And uh, the opponent in this fan is actually a really interesting guy. His name's Robert Manton. He had satellited into the event uh, for like 200 bucks. And in the satellite, he didn't even want to play the tournament. He wanted to like, you know, maybe there's two seats. I think he wanted to take third place and get like the 9,500 in cash and not play it. So he's in the tournament, even though he just wanted to take the cash. And he ends up running super deep in it. I think he finished like 15th or something like that. He's like a, a like works out all the time type of guy that runs like three plus miles a day. So this is my opponent. He's you know recreational player, but he's like definitely a very hardy guy for being how old he is. Uh, so when I open under the gun, I just min open at the stack depth. Which the reason why I'm min opening, even though we're 60 big blinds deep and I'm in early position, is because you know if I don't really recognize anyone at the table, it means it's a pretty soft table, and I generally want to keep the stack to pot ratio as deep as possible to to leverage my skill edge. You know, the larger I raise, the larger my opponents are going to three bet. The larger they three bet, the shorter the stacks get uh, relative to the size of the pot, and then the less skill edge matters. So I min open and try to play as many hands as possible. Uh, the cutoff calls, the button calls, and the big blind who is uh, Robert defense. So pot size is 24,000. I have king queen of diamonds. And flop is ace of diamonds, seven of diamonds, ace of clubs. Which, you know, flopping the nut flush draw paired board four ways is a pretty good spot. Uh, it kind of sucks that there are, you know, some aces out there. Likelihood opponent has trips is kind of reasonable considering it's a cutoff and button caller with the big blind as well. Cutoff and button can both have some pretty strong ace X's in there. That being said, uh, since all three of these opponents, I view them to be recreational players, I definitely still want to bet this. Essentially try to clean up some equity, try to get to the turn for a price that I set. So I bet 7000 into the 24000 chip pot. The cutoff folds, the button folds, and Robert raises to 15000 Wow. So Robert Manton, who is a very successful businessman, who's also 85 yep. years old, I think you already mentioned, but just yeah. to hammer it in, 85, that's so incredible yeah. that he's still playing poker at a high level. And you um, get min-raised by him, basically. You said it was 7 yeah. to 15, right? Right, so I bet 7,000 to 24, choosing a one, uh, just less than one-third pot sizing to give myself, you know, really good odds on hitting my draw, um, keeping all my opponent's ranges somewhat wide, but also think that their ranges, for the most part, are going to be somewhat static. You know, if I bet 7K here, 12K here, I don't think anyone's range is going to change too much. I think I'm going to get added floats or anything like that. So I can downsize a little bit as an exploit. And when Robert raises me to 15k, I really have to try to think about what types of hands he does this with. And I think, honestly, he can have a lot of different things here. But I think it's mostly going to be split between some, like, two-pair type stuff. So 7x, pocket 8s, pocket 9s, pocket 10s. Uh, it's ace, 7-ace. So two aces on the board. Uh, so he might check-raise small, like a 7 or something like that. Try to, like, get a little value and push me off some, like, king highs and stuff. Uh, more hands like pocket eights or pocket nines for value and push me off these types of hands. Also might do it uh, for value with hands like ace x, you know, going small, trying to make it look like he's on a draw. And of course he can have some flush draws. And so when he makes a 15k, I'm of course getting incredibly good odds on this call with my flush draw and and two likely overs. So I call. Uh, pot size is 54,000 and the turn is gin for me. It is a 10 of diamonds and he checks. 
So when he checks to me, I think for the most part that he doesn't really have that many ASEX. I think he can have some. But I do expect him to, like, barrel small with ace-x occasionally. I expect him to barrel small with uh, diamonds. So if he also has a flush, I expect him to barrel a fairly high percentage of the time. And that means, like, when he does check the turn, I think he, in, like, general, has a hand like a 7, well, 8s or 9s. And if he does have a diamond, I want to make sure those call. So when he checks to me, I decide to bet small going 22,000 into 54,000. Right, and now he, what does he do now? So he calls. Okay, so he calls. So you've got the flush. It's ace, ace seven, ace, two diamonds on the flop, the ten of diamonds in the turn, and then the river. The river is the queen of hearts, which should be a very good card for me. Because, I mean, first of all, I block a queen. So him having ace queen just with that's pretty tough. Also think that he would barrel the turn with ace queen a fairly high percentage of the time. So I don't think it's very likely that he has a hand like ace queen or many full houses just because a lot of them would bet the turn so i do think i have the best hand a fairly high percentage of the time and you know if he did check to me i would have very happily bet this for value instead he leads forty thousand, which i was very confused by so he leads forty thousand into how much 98 so just under 40 percent pot you didn't have any read based on like timing or anything like that i mean the fact that he did it quickly was like the only concerning thing that, you know, maybe helped my decision, but I didn't read too much into it just because, you know, I I hadn't been at the table long. So if he did have any timing tells, I wouldn't have really known for sure. So trying to figure out whether or not I could do something ridiculous like folding here comes entirely down to what types of hands I can put my opponent on. And here's the thing. I think he's betting this for value. I don't think he's ever going to bluff here because what bluffs would he even have? Like, There's not a single bluff that makes sense. So then when it comes to what does he bet for value, obviously, for the most part, he probably needs a flush. If he does have an ace, maybe it's a hand like ace-jack or something like that. But I kind of thought if he would bet a hand like ace-jack that he might bet fairly small. So maybe even smaller than 40,000. I know 40k doesn't seem like it's a very big bet, but I don't think he had me covered by a lot. He might have had a little bit more than me. But So when we get to the river, he's putting in a pretty significant portion of his stack. You know, I think uh, at this point, see here, we have uh, 30, it would have been like probably a bit more than a third of his stack remaining. So we probably each had about uh, maybe 90,000 back, something like that. So he's betting almost half a stack on the river as a lead. And to me, that means that he thinks he's pretty confident that he has the best hand. And I don't think that's like ace jack, not with like flush getting there, king jack getting there. I could have full houses, uh, things like that. So I don't think he really has an ace. Um, and if he does, it's maybe a shack exactly. But I really didn't think that he would. And uh, for flushes, I thought almost all of them would bet the turn. And I also don't think that the check raise flop very often. You know, if he has a hand like 8-9 of diamonds or something like that, you know, he's probably not going to very often check raise a flop. If they had king x of diamonds, which I blocked, Uh, But I'd still expect them to bet the turn. And queen x of diamonds, you know, if I didn't have the queen of diamonds in my hand, if I had, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, nine of diamonds, I probably, like, I I would almost never fold the river. I'm sure I would have called in game with it. But seeing as how I block queen x of diamonds, and I really don't think that he's going to bet the river without, like, a flush or better. And I don't think he's really going to check raise the flop very small with these flushes. And I don't think he's going to check them on on the turn that means the only hands that he really bets the river with 
are hands that I lose to full houses, or he like way overvalued a hand to some degree. And when you break down the situation logically like that, it you come up with a pretty clear decision. So even though I'm getting three and a half to one of my money, which means you know I'm getting one divided by four and a half odds, I I only need to be correct here twenty two point two two percent of the time, give or take. I actually just folded it. Wow. And I, I don't take it he showed. Uh, he didn't show. However, I spoke with him like three hours later about the hand and he said that he had ace 10. He had ace 10 and he didn't, oh, and he just checked the, the turn, didn't check raise yeah. you and just led the river. Wow, that's such an interesting way to play it. You had said earlier that you kind of discounted ace queen because you felt that he would have bet the turn with that hand. So him checking the turn with ace 10 makes a decent amount of sense so on the flop he's like hey i've got value but you know there's some flush draw possible i i want to try to you know charge that draw a little bit you know i want to raise a little bit keep in a ton of different things and then the turn he's like wow i have such a strong hand i'm just gonna set a trap let this kid bet so he sets the trap i bet he calls if anything if he check raises the turn i feel as though most people would fold virtually everything because they would just go, oh, this is just, you know, full house or the nut flush or whatever. So I actually like how he played the hand. Um, I think he played it pretty well. And I actually like that he led and I like the sizing that he chose. The only issue is that I didn't think he would have a worse hand for value. And I didn't think he'd be bluffing ever. I could have been wrong about those things. And my fold, even though it was right against what he actually had, could have actually been a mistake. But a lot of recreational players, when they're in fields like this, especially in a day two, they just don't really tend to have bluffs in in a spot like this. You know, it, it'd be different if he'd applied pressure pre-flop and was barreling down or something like that. Then obviously I'm not folding. But when it's a spot like this where who the aggressor is changes each street, it just makes it a lot less likely that he's bluffing. So I think he just got really unfortunate that he ran into me and that I was capable of finding a fold like this. I feel as though that the line that he took would have made the most money versus the majority of people for the like maybe like betting the turn and triple barreling might be more profitable for some but i feel as though the line that he took would have gotten him paid off for the 40k almost versus everyone well what about a check raise in the river you don't think that would have worked out better no the river check raise definitely isn't going to be the most profitable because if i'm not even going to consider calling if i'm not like mm -hmm. calling a lead then i'm definitely not going to call a check raise and i feel as though when he does if he did ever check raise the river I'd only call with ace-10 or better, so it'd be technically a losing play against my calling range. And your bet on the river, how big would it have been if he checked to you? Um, I probably would have bet around the same amount, maybe like 35000 expecting him to have a hand like ace-jack or flush or whatever, and for me to win a very high percentage of the time. Gotcha. So he would get that bet, but then there'd be the off chance that you have ace-queen or something, so it wouldn't be very profitable is what you're saying. Right. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. And did you tell him what you had or? I ended up showing that I made the fold. Oh, you showed the whole, you showed the table. When I show, I'm generally trying to just like get information on people, get their reactions, try to like sell misinformation. You can do it for a lot of different reasons. You just need to be exceptionally careful the type of table you do it at. I tend to only really do it at very, very soft tables. Or if it is a very pro-heavy table, I have a very specific use for it that I'm confident I can accomplish. Did you notice any like reactions when you folded a hand that strong to the, the I mean, 40K lead? I mean, surprise, but 
uh, we spoke about the hand a bit afterwards and said it made, made a lot of sense. I can't help but notice when I see a lot of your hand histories on Twitter with those really awesome interactive quizzes, two themes kind of like stick out at me, a lot of aggressive preflop ranges and a lot of really huge folds. Is this just my selective memory or is there something to these trends? I mean, I tend to post the most interesting hands and, you know, I don't really want to post some standard hand where I just picked up, opened loose, picked up something really good and got max value from it. I just don't think a lot of those hands are very interesting unless I took a really weird line to get max value, like going for the double check raise to overpot river or something, you know, fun like that. And I think, you know, when I post those hands, it should give you a good idea as to how I view most people's ranges in terms of like being random recreational players, you know, that people way under bluff in lots of spots, that they aren't aggressive enough pre-flop or post-flop. And, you know, that enables me to make some of these really ridiculous folds. And, you know, I'm occasionally wrong with them, I'm sure. But often enough, you know, these folds tend to be fairly correct. And the loose opens is also based off of the fact that I'm able to min-open, the fact that people weigh under three bet, the fact that when they do defend, they don't defend post-flop correctly. You know, I really try my best to leverage my skill edge in as many ways as possible. And one of them is just opening really loose on very soft tables. And I enjoy having a lot of fun with the hands because while it gives a decent insight to how I think about and approach situations, it also is posting just like the weirdest and most interesting hands. And I'm trying to use it as a tool to get people to think more creatively and differently about the game. I feel as though to a decent degree, people believe that there is like a quote unquote by the book way to play a lot of situations and that they have like in their mind exactly what a preflop opening range should look like. And I feel as though a lot of that is kind of antiquated to some degree, especially as a lot of these ranges, you know, people are like assuming that cash ranges are the same for tournaments or they have an idea as to like what an optimal range looks like when it's actually much looser than what most people believe. I'll give you an idea. Uh, an under the gun one opening range on 100 big blinds deep is 14.7% of hands. And on 40 big blinds is 19% of hands, which most people would be completely and totally shocked by those numbers. You know, 19% as an RFI from under the gun one is very loose. And where are you getting these numbers from? Are these like uh, uh, simulations? Uh, yep, from running simulations on Munker. Are you running the simulation with like the big blind Annie? So this is for your tournament yep. play. So this is for uh, tournament play specifically. Uh, cash game play not having an ante makes a huge, huge, huge difference in these. Right, for sure. And yeah, that might be one of the reasons that sometimes people get confused. They're looking at ranges um, without that in play. But um, there's a poker saying that goes fold and tell no one. But I feel like your mantra is fold and tell everyone. And how do you get this confidence to not only make such huge folds, but also broadcast them either by showing them in the hand that you described today with the King Queen of Diamonds, but also on, on Twitter? I mean, is this something that your students also learn to do? And how do you get that confidence? In large part, I'm confident mostly because of the amount of coaching that I do. It really helped solidify a lot of aspects of my game and also doing the amount of coaching that I do with such a wide range of students, I get to see like the in-depth thought process behind how so many different people approach the game. Uh, just because I coach everything from weak recreational players who are more like business people or whatever, all the way up to mid to high stakes professionals. 
because I coach such a wide range, I get all these different thought processes and viewpoints. I'm friends with a very wide range of abilities as well. Some of my pretty good friends are some of the better grinders and players in the world. And having access to that amount of information really helps me build and grow my game. Plus having access to really, really good Pio solver and Munker solver information and spending a decent amount of time on it really has helped solidify the fundamentals of my game. And then I just have tons and tons of live experience. You know, living in Vegas enables me to play live a lot and really get a good idea as to how, you know, most live players think about and approach situations. And then, of course, as I get information on someone, I adjust my reads and thought process and so on and so forth. And when I'm posing these hands, it can be really difficult to properly convey the amount of information I really have on someone. I'll say, you know, in the hand as a descriptor, like they are a middle-aged unknown or that they are a local pro or that they are a good pro or sometimes I'll even say who it is. If it's like a well-known pro, I'll ask them if they don't mind, you know, being tagged in the hand or something like that. For the most part, you know, I'm not necessarily saying who the person is, but this could be someone that I personally have played 100 plus hours with. And I have a lot of information on a conscious and subconscious level on them that really helps me solidify some of my reads and decision making process you know like knowing for sure that someone's going to be really way under bluffing or way over bluffing a situation or what their in general range is going to look like and you know having that amount of experience with someone and then just being able and willing to really trust those reads and follow up through on them really helps me with my live game Poker, for the most part, is a mental game, you know, much more so than I think most people give it credit for, especially when you're playing poker, you're playing with a lot of unknown information. You know, it's very different than chess. Chess, you know exactly what everything is, where it's at, you know, how it all moves. You know exactly like what your opponent's board looks like, general strategies they might be trying to use against you. And obviously there's some mental game involved in chess. You know, if you get off your thought process, you can really screw up a strategy that you're using and how you're approaching your opponent. But in poker, having such limited information means the mental aspect of the game is a lot more important because, you know, when you make a call or fold in a situation, you know, in poker, whether you won or lost a hand does not mean you made the right decision. Even if you got it in a head, it does not mean you made the right decision. You know, that the time that your opponent was bluffing could have been a 1% bluff. And you just happen to be correct. So being confident and being able to honestly analyze every decision you make and then follow through on that analysis is by far one of the most important aspects of the game, if not the most important aspect. Yeah, I would really agree with that. And you know what I find so fascinating about um, what you're saying is that from a chess perspective, having students that are not as strong as you is usually not very beneficial. I mean, it's awesome because... It can be a great service to the students, but it's not usually beneficial to your own game. In poker, of course, it's very different because you're playing against all levels. So you kind of want to understand the thought process of every level. And I know that the um, partner you're working on Learn Pro Poker with, Gary Aronovich, is actually also the um, co-founder of a phenomenal chess training website with Grandmaster Mezgin Amanov, which is improvemychess.com. And... it's uh, really exciting to hear that you're working with him on Learn Pro Poker. What's going to be different about that website compared to other poker training modules? By me making the site, I'm not saying, hey, these sites aren't good. I'm saying they are good, but look at how expensive they are. Not that many people can afford to just put up 
you know, $1,100 to improve their game. And I do think their content is worth that money. You know, it's very well built, very well structured, and you're learning from some of the best players on the planet. But being such a high barrier to entry, it really pushes out most people from being able to learn this incredible content. So what I've done is I've taken the same style of content, GTO, very well structured, all very fundamentally based. And instead of it being, you know, $1,000, instead it's $40 a month. And in fact, uh, for a soft launch, I think we're going to do $25 a month for a soft launch. And then we ideally should be full launching in September at our $40 a month rate. And the soft launch, we'll be doing a pre-flop mastery course. Well, that's wonderful to hear, Ryan, because I know that you're also very big on social justice. And I think that, you know, maybe this is a stretch, but I will say that, like, one thing about these poker courses that are very expensive is it's pretty clear that sometimes people, like, share a house and maybe multiple people can watch it at once if, like, a lot of young, right. young men are sharing the same house. Whereas, you know, when you're talking about older people, when you're talking about women, people with kids, people who aren't maybe right. part of those huge networks, I think something like what you're talking about is really important. Right. It's a lot more accessible to more people um, at a price point that most people can actually afford. And I also did my best to really make the content accessible for everyone in terms of ability as well. With the amount of coaching that I do, I feel as though it's given me a really good grasp of how to teach to each level of student. So when I've made my content, I've made it in a fashion in which I strongly feel as though all levels of players can A, afford it, and B, actually learn it and get really actually use it in their games as well, pretty much immediately. And I feel as though that by making this stuff a lot more affordable and giving it to the broader audience, that should help with things like diversity. One of the biggest issues with, I feel as though, poker for a long time was that in order to really improve a lot of this content was either locked behind really expensive courses, really expensive coaching, or was locked behind being part of a small group that works together and studies together and improves together. A lot of them are very diverse groups. The issue these days is that these groups tend to be very closed. You know, getting into a new group is very difficult You know, because of the nature of the industry, because of the nature of information. Uh, people don't want to risk getting scammed and things like that. And also they, they want to guard this information to a reasonable degree. And that makes a lot of sense. But it really can prevent diversity to a degree because of all these factors as well. So by doing this, I think I'm accomplishing a lot of different things. Um, I'm helping show other people just how in-depth this game is, trying to show people all the complexity that really goes into being a full-time professional grinder. And, you know, just how beautiful the strategy and theory and everything is behind the game of poker itself is. And I feel as though that, you know, as people really become better at understanding it, that they'll learn to appreciate the game in the same type of manner that I do, as well as help grow the industry. So I'm trying to do a lot of things at once with this site. Obviously, I have high, uh, high hopes and expectations for it. But either way, I think it's been a really fun project to work on. Um, even though it's been a lot of work, I've had a lot of fun doing it. Well, I'm really excited about that, Ryan, because, you know, with the grid, it's really important to me to get some, to get a lot of diversity as well, because I feel like it's a kind of a collective creation as I'm right. going to be having these 169 hands and every person is going to take one combo. So now, for instance, nobody gets to talk about king, queen suited. And thinking of it that way, I'm like, well... Of course, we're going to get every poker hand, but are we, are we going to get every type of person? And I hope so. And obviously, the types of stuff that you're talking about will make that easier to pull off. 
want to ask you because you're so passionate about your work with Chip Leader Coaching and this new Learn Pro poker site. What do most people get wrong as they try to improve on their own? I would say with how good the information is out there in a lot of different ways, you know, going from, you know, source of information to source of information can be a fine way to learn and enter stuff into your game. But the biggest issue can be that not all information is really created equally. You know, some of the information is outdated. Some of the information isn't as well grounded in, you know, modern theory as what it needs to be. And the stuff that's free or easy to find or cheap can sometimes be not of the highest quality. And, you know, some of it is incredibly good. It's just a lot of it isn't that good. And when a player can't really tell the difference between it, they're getting some incredibly good information, some okay information, and some really bad information. And the really bad information can completely and totally destroy large aspects of their game because there are things that they're doing that are so off for so long. And there's also things that I was doing in my game for many years that was just completely and totally off. If I'd known about that stuff a long time ago, that I would have had a much more profitable last handful of years. I mean, it's been very good to me, but you know, this bad information can really, really limit you. Like what kind of bad information, for instance, did you have that you later corrected? Um, I would honestly open ranges, you know, what, what an opening range should look like from each position and why, and how the range loosens or tightens based off stack depth. Um, you know, what a limp range should look like, why the limp range should look like that, how to properly balance it, how ranges interact on board textures, how much range advantage matters. Range advantage is one of the most important aspects of the game, yet people don't really talk anywhere near enough about it things that people don't really either know is as much of a thing or don't really realize how much it matters. That's the type of stuff that can be really hard, you know, for someone trying to find, you know, proper information on the game. And really it's just, it, it's very time intensive. And most people either aren't willing to put in that amount of time and effort, or even if they are willing to, they go on all these, you know, wrong paths. And it's a very difficult total learning process. So by making the site, I'm hoping to simplify the learning process to as much as I personally am capable. I'm not saying like that the information I'm selling is perfect. In fact, that's one of the other things that I'm trying to do with the site is as I grow as a player, the information will grow and change as well. I'm going to try to add in new information consistently, but also I'm going to re-go back through certain videos where I'll be like, whoa, I've gotten a lot better at playing the turn. I'm going to redo these videos, post that they're edited, change the ranges, change the theory, so on and so forth. That way, like the information on the site isn't just the best what I had to offer right now in 2019. It'll be the best that I have to offer at each point as I grow as a player and as, as the site grows. That's wonderful. Well, the final question, and I can't wait to go through it myself. What hand types do you find that students tend to underrate on the grid or fail to play preflop as often as they should? As you've been discussing a couple of times in this podcast, how your preflop ranges have widened and that some people don't realize how wide they should be. Are there certain hand types that people are neglecting? King seven suited. <laughs> All right. A, a hand strength exactly like that. Uh, it, in fact, you can actually say that exact hand. Um, for instance, king seven suited is an open, I do believe, at every single stack depth from under the gun one. Ah, king ain't suited is. Okay, so let's say king ain't suited instead. But even, like, hands like that, those, like, 
weak middling suited kings, you know, the bottom end of the, like the suited broadways, you know, going down to like queen eight suited, jack eight suited, stuff like that. These are hands that people do not raise anywhere near enough. They don't three bet them anywhere near enough. They don't check raise on lots of board textures anywhere near enough with them. Um, they're really diverse and high playability hands. You know, when when you can open a hand like king eight suited, under the gun one on 100 big blinds effective, and very, very few people do, I think that's really a great example of a hand that people way underappreciate. Most people view the fact that it's not a connector as being a huge detriment. And yeah, it is a detriment to it. But having the king high suitedness and having a hand that isn't dominated by an ace gives it a lot more playability than what most people uh, really give it credit for. So yeah, I would say exactly a hand like king seven or king eight suited. Yeah, wow, very, it's been fascinating to talk to you, Ryan. Um, I'm, I'm so excited to see you this summer and also I'm really excited about the new site, Learn Pro Poker. You can follow Ryan at Potential MN and I'm sure he'll update you on the site and we'll look forward to your progress in the series and in coaching. Thank you very much for having me on. I really do appreciate it and I had a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as the quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women where I host another podcast, Ladies Night. And follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram.